can open to Proverbs chapter 8. Our Old Testament reading comes from Proverbs chapter 8. We'll read verses 12 through 21. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance are the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon the reading and the preaching of scripture. A blessed treasure, Lord, you've set before us in your word, wisdom and riches, Uh, Lord, uh, open them to us now as uh, we sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ who instructs us, uh, who teaches us, uh, who continues um, as our uh, great teacher, even now, um, who has purchased us and has promised uh, to lead us in paths of righteousness. And so be pleased uh, even now to attend our hearts, uh, attend uh, the word read and, and preached with the wonderful working of by the Holy Spirit, um, who brings forth life, who brings forth light, uh, who brings forth uh, strength, um, who blesses, uh, who corrects, who retrieves, um, and dreadfully, who also hardens. Um, but keep us, O oh Lord, uh, soft and attentive uh, to your word, uh, that we may receive of its riches uh, and live. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The scripture text is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Uh, You'll find that in the exposition of the Ten Commandments through Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of the questions is simply a rehearsing of the scripture text itself, which is what you'll find in Westminster Shorter Question 53. So I'll read Exodus 20, verse 7, and then we'll turn our attention to question 54. But first, this is the word of the Lord. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And then question 54 asks, what is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. 
Have we got word just this past week or within the last two weeks that our young nephew decided to uh, try his hand at sticking a paper clip in an outlet? Uh, and he found that neither the outlet nor the paper clip was made for that. <laughs> and he was taken to the hospital. He's fine. Uh, he learned a hard lesson. Uh, I trust he will no longer be putting paper clips in sockets. Um, electrical outlets are not for uh, paper clips. That's not how you use them. That's how, not how they are to be approached. <laughs> One cannot uh, approach an electrical outlet as if it were a piece of paper, something harmless. Um, it is something that needs to be attended with the appropriate respect, with the appropriate understanding to approach it as something else is dangerous. We get a similar um, image pressed upon our hearts with the mighty blessing uh, but also a mighty power that is in the name, the name of the true and living God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's first worth asking, what do we mean by the name? What is God's name? And we use this word name to mean a number of things, don't we? Even in uh, popular speech, we'll talk about the name that a person has made for themselves. It's got actually biblical roots. That's from Genesis chapter 10. Let's make a name for ourselves. Um, the idea of a reputation is behind this name, but also it begins to stand almost for the people or the person themselves. Uh, very quickly turns into a, a monument or a memorial, uh, that which will uh, continue the name. Absalom didn't have any children, but he did construct a memorial, a monument for himself to carry his name on. So there's a substitution or at least an identification of the name and the person, the name and the representation. But in this context, the most immediate reference is the literal name Yahweh. That's the most immediate reference. You can hear it in the verse itself. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now he shifts here to the third person. In the first two commandments, he's spoken in the first person. You shall have no other gods before me. He says that they're not to worship uh, uh, the work of their hands, but they're to worship him. Um, here he uses the third person profiling the name itself. You shall not take the name the Lord, which is that covenant name of God, in vain. But it goes beyond just the name itself. The name is important. The name is most precious. You can think of the Exodus event. This kind of strange passage where God tells Moses that, I'm making known to you my name, even in a way that I didn't make known to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the name Yahweh. Well, it certainly doesn't mean that they had never heard that syllabic content. It's everywhere early on in the sacred history. What it means is that the Exodus was going to uniquely set on display who God was in a way that even the patriarchs didn't see. 
The Exodus was going to uniquely reveal who God was in terms of the Almighty and in terms of Israel's God. So his name was precious. His name was incredibly precious. But it isn't just his name. It's everything that God has given by which he may truly be known. The psalmist declares, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The heavens make him known. The wonders of his creation make him known. This didn't just happen. The excellencies everywhere on display around us, the beauty, the vastness of the heaven, the complexity of the heavens, it very plainly demonstrates who he is as a God of wisdom and power and goodness. But not just that, that testimony that he's left concerning himself in creation, but also in his special dealing with Israel. Joshua 9, 9, the episode where uh, the Gibeonites come and they deceive Israel. They come and they say to Joshua, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. The ancient world heard about what took place in Egypt. God says that's actually part of the point. Part of the point is so that as far as this report goes, as much as they know the renown of Egypt, they will now know the renown of Yahweh. It made him known. So the name isn't just a name. It is that, but it's more than that. It's what he's given to reveal himself, to make himself known as the Almighty, but also as the God of Israel, which hinted even at that stage that he was to be found in favor, that he was to be found in mercy. So we understand by God's name, not just the name Yahweh or God or even Jesus Christ, but all that God has given to make himself known. That's what the question states. God's names, his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his word, and his works. We can remark just at the outset how wonderful it is that he has given us his name. We've preferred to make a name for ourselves. That's an entire trajectory. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's drown out his name with our name. And yet, his name persists. And not just that, his name has been given as a blessing to a particular people. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I have glorified your name. I have kept them in your name. I have made known your name. We're invited to see the full significance of this name in the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say the name incarnate. The name above all names. 
the only name in heaven and on earth whereby men may be saved. It's not just that He's given us His name in terms of that which we can take up. He's put His name on us. Matthew 28. Go. Go. (laughs) And baptize into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Wherever you're making disciples, you are putting my name on them. I own them, and they belong to me. And in a wonderful, wonderful way, I belong to them. Because if he gives his name to us, it means he gives himself to us. It's a remarkable blessing. He gives His name to you. And it's in this name that we pray, approaching Him in confidence. Approaching Him in a fullness of expectancy because His Word instructs us to. It's in His name that we search the Scripture. For He has promised to give us wisdom. He's promised to to make known His will. He's promised to teach us, to instruct us. That's part of the Great Commission, right? Go forth, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So we can search this word in His name, confident that because we are His, He is ours, He will do that very thing. It's in this name that we give thanks. It's in this name that we have hope for the one who dies in the Lord does not die. <laughs> this is a fountain of mighty blessings, this name. Calvin would have us see just how unworthy we are of this name. To take it upon our lips to press our benefits with the Lord in this name. Whatever you ask of Him in my name, He will give to you. In one sense, it's remarkably unfitting that we bear this name, given our own penchant for that which is not God, our own preference for sin, our own way, death, and yet He's given us His name. It would be more fitting for the royal family to declare a monkey the crown prince than for our God to place his name upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he has taken us as enemies and made us his beloved children. Wonder of wonders. You bear the name of the triune God. So then if our Heavenly Father has bestowed His name upon us in a staggering display of grace extended unto sinners, enemies, then let us earnestly desire to learn how to reverence this name. How to properly use this name and to consider what that entails. For it's only sinfulness and foolishness which would consider God's name as a common thing in ways that do not honor His reputation. And that's what He expressly forbids, saying, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He's given us His name and now He calls us to handle it rightly. It's a weighty blessing. It's a mighty blessing, but it's not to be trifled with. 
So what does it have in mind here in this commandment? What's forbidden here? What's an inappropriate handling of his name? Well, in the immediate context, there's two things. It's swearing falsely in his name and profaning his name. Calvin explains God's name is taken in vain not only when anyone abuses it by perjury, but when it's lightly and disrespectfully put forward in proof of silly and trifling matters. So what does it mean to swear falsely in his name? To swear falsely in God's name means to take an oath or a vow with God as witness and then break it. That's what it means. Leviticus 19.12 And you shall not swear by my name falsely, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. One of the gifts that God has given us in giving us his name is lending us his credit, as it were. We have no credit. We've got terrible credit because you're a bunch of liars. Constantly unfaithful. Our word means nothing. You say you'll do something, something comes up, the word gets negated. Your word's got no weight. The word of human beings has no weight. We've shown ourselves to be remarkably vulnerable to lying, remarkably fickle, remarkably unfaithful. So God gives us his name and lends us his credit, as it were. To swear in the name of God is essentially saying, God will vouch for me. To swear in the name of God and then violate that thing is to despise God. Can you feel the heinousness of it? Is it not self-evidently absurd? It despises him because it shows an utter disregard for his knowledge of the treachery and his power to search you out. Right? It despises him because it's utterly unconcerned with dragging his name through the muck of our lives. The one who is true. Truth itself. It shows utter unconcern with dragging his name through the mud of our infidelity. The one who is faithfulness itself. We don't take oaths and vows all that often. But you do take them. You've taken them. Marriage vows. Church membership vows. I think it's an indication of the low regard in which we hold God that we violate those things willy-nilly. At your preference. At your leisure. At your discretion. The astonishing thing is he doesn't hold us guiltless. The courts of men can't persecute these things. Even church courts can't persecute these things. But you're not going to escape the one whose name you took these things in. Men are the least of your concerns. As Christians, we swear only in one name and one name alone. The name of the true and living God. And as Christians, we take those things seriously because we know the one who is given the name. 
we know the one who has made himself known in the name. It's a weighty matter. And only weighty matters deserve the weighty name. What does it mean to profane his name? Leviticus 24:15 and 16. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. It's a capital offense. What does it mean to curse the name of God? Well, the word to curse in the Hebrew means to make light. That's literally what it means, to make light. It's actually a similar image that's used here in the commandment. You shall not take up the name of the Lord unto emptiness. The image is lightness, emptiness, and how unfitting that is for the name which is weight itself. You probably don't know much about the word glory, but somewhere you were told that it has the image of weightiness behind it. The one who is glorious is trivialized, made nothing. bandied about in our banalities. It's similar to what Belshazzar did in Daniel chapter 5. The story of Belshazzar, his folly, this utterly foolish king. He's having a vulgar feast and he summons the holy cups that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And he wants them to be brought as instruments for his debauchery, for his vanity. (laughs) Daniel is utterly disgusted with this king. You get that feeling from the text. You barely contain his revulsion at him. And it is disgusting. Those cups are not for that. They are for the opposite of that. A debauched feast. Communion with a holy God. To take something holy and defile it. To take something weighty and trivialize it. That's what it means to profane the name. So this gets us as close as we're going to get to what we mean by cursing or swearing or I guess what popular culture calls cursing. But it's particularly concerned with the name of God or the works of God. So we use words like hell or damn with a certain lightness that utterly undercuts the gravity of what those words mean. Eternal perdition. The eternal condemnation of sinners in God's wrath. And we use it when we stub our toe. Or we're willing to assign our neighbor to that over a disagreement. That's what it means to profane God's name. The frequency with which this happens is certainly no indication that it isn't as heinous as God's word tells us that it is. The same thing is true when we use... God's literal name in some way that's not prayerful or worshipful or in adoration 
We use it as an exclamation. Again, dragged into a context and a frame which is utterly out of keeping with the infinite majesty which it sets on display by the one who's given it as a gift. I would say it probably also extends into our flippant and seemingly pious-sounding phrases, bandy about things like praise the Lord with a certain thoughtlessness. There's certainly not a, a rich exaltation that's going on there. It's just peppering our language. And it's offensive. There's one more vain use of God's name that I think is important and that we see in the Old Testament. It's the use of God's name in false prophecy. The false prophets were constantly setting forth God's name as that which authorized, guaranteed their message. Jeremiah was surrounded by prophets who were saying the exact opposite of what God had sent him to say in the name of Yahweh. They were all saying, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. And then delivering not the word of God, but the word of man. Does this still take place? Yeah, it still takes place. Sometimes carelessly with our charismatic friends. They say, God told me to tell you such and such. No, no, he didn't. That's too weighty a thing to say for what's about to transpire here. Phil Riken graciously points out, of course, there's an inward leading of the Holy Spirit, but it's only inward leading and it should not be misrepresented as an authoritative word of God. It's taking God's name in vain. Best case scenario, God gives us wisdom and insight from his word and we share it with others as far as we've been given discretion and insight and understanding. But to stamp thus says the Lord on it is absurd and actually dangerous. It's rather comical, but my poor wife had to turn down any number of suitors who informed her that God had told them that they were supposed to marry my wife. Like, I wish I was making that up. People do that thing. They did that thing. God told me we're supposed to be together. It's like, what? I mean, thankfully, she saw right through. She's like, no, he didn't. Go away. I'm going to marry this OPC minister one day. We're going to have a very happy life together. They wouldn't have understood any of that. <laughs> but you imagine someone who's impressionable, who's easily led astray. Well, I don't want to go against God's word. If this is what God told me to do, I want to do it. It's too weighty. Don't say it if you're prone to saying it. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. But it happens in our circles too. When we say or communicate things like God wants you to homeschool, it's like as, as, as well thought out as our opinions might be, as well thought out as our convictions might be, they're too flimsy to bear the weight of the name of God. We don't put his name on our opinions. It's bearing the name in vain. You can see why these 
abuses highlight this general principle that the question presses upon us. Namely, we're called to approach his name rightly with holy reverence. It's an electrical outlet and we've all got a paper clip. He's not safe. (laughs) Even though he's good and our God. So we can see how this teaching, this commandment has particular application to public worship. Because where are we confronted with his name? Where do we take up his name? Where do we take up his works? Where do we take up his word? In their fullest iteration, it's in public worship. Phil Riken highlights that the subtlest and perhaps most common way we break the third commandment is by being careless in our worship. We approach a consuming fire as if there were just another man with a microphone. Approach the Word of God as it's, if it's just something that I'll consider if I get around to. <laughs> Our God is a consuming fire. He's to be approached with adoration and reverence and awe, even though we approach Him as children in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does God care how you approach Him? He's made you, formed you, fashioned you, taken you, supplied for your every need, provides you with the Lord Jesus Christ. Does He care how we approach Him? Assuredly. In fact, we can probably say that more important than the form of our worship is the posture of our worship. Why would I say that? More important than the elements of our worship is the posture of our hearts. Why would I say that? Isn't that exactly what Israel's problem was of old? Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fat and cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts, harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Those are prescribed forms of worship. And they are detestable to him. Why? Because this people honors me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. He cares about our posture to come into his presence in arrogance, to come into his presence in unbelief, to come in his presence in anything other than humble adoration is dangerous. It's dangerous, and he's not to be trifled with. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
The reality of the one to whom we draw near informs how we draw near. One cannot approach fire without an understanding, a respect, and a reverence for it. As dangerous, but also as that which purifies, (laughs) that which gives light. Theology is always practical. Your doctrine of who God is, your understanding of who God is, is going to translate in how you approach Him. We have this tendency to think that the God who is a consuming fire so plainly set on display in the Old Testament is somehow changed. He's not the same God anymore. Now He's just utterly safe. He's just a buddy that we hang out with on Sunday if we have time. (laughs) It's the same God. The wonder is that a way has been made open for us in the Lord Jesus Christ to draw near to Him, not in fear, but in adoration, a different kind of fear, if you will. One that stands in awe of who He is as the One who has taken us for His own. As the one who has made the provision for us to come near. But he hasn't changed. Heaven forbid. He's the same yesterday, today, and always. We approach with reverence and awe. But also thankfulness. You heard it there. Therefore, let us be grateful. Why? Because we can approach Him. And it doesn't destroy us. Because we find in His presence not wrath, but blessing. Or more specifically, according to Hebrews 12, because He's made us heirs in the Lord Jesus Christ of a kingdom that does not perish, whose treasures are not subject to the frailties and the uncertainties of this world. Not only has He canceled your debt, sinner, whereby eternal perdition was your rightful portion, He's replaced said debt with eternal blessedness. We have reason to be thankful. I think you could be hard-pressed to find a more fitting word to describe a true Christian than thankful. It was said of John Stott that he could hardly receive a cup of coffee without being struck by how unworthy he was to receive such a simple kindness. I pray that more and more your eyes are being opened, not just to the blessing extended unto you in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that your life is adorned day by day with mercies that are new. And gratitude is most appropriate, offered in faith. But not only that, humility. It's impossible to be thankful if you're not humble. Why? Because everything you receive, you think is owed to you. It's a humble heart. That's a thankful heart. Humility and thanksgiving go hand in hand because there's an acknowledgement 
of gift. There's an acknowledgement of something that's bestowed that hasn't been earned, but has been freely given. And at this beats humility. And I would hasten to add joy, reverence, awe, humility, and joy. This world is fading away. The kingdoms of man are shaking. One kingdom will rise against another kingdom. That kingdom will fall and maybe things stabilize again. There's one kingdom that will never be shaken by any of it. There's one king who can see all of his subjects through the rise and fall of all earthly nations. And this is the kingdom into which you have been brought. The word joy exceeds what we mean by happiness. It comes much, much closer to peace. It comes much, much closer to the hymn that says, It is well with my soul. That's the heart of joy. That's the heart of the one who has been shown the magnitude of favor and love that has been opened unto you, dear sinner, simply for the praise of his good name. It's not just in worship, though, and this is the final point I want to make. It's in all of life that we are called to honor his name. That's what Paul says in Titus 2, 2 verses, verses 2 through 5. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be blasphemed. The entirety of our conduct The entire life which unfolds as we bear this name Christian is called to be taken up as that which honors the name that we bear. Honors the Lord who has placed his name upon it. So how do we honor God's word according to this passage? God's word, another facet of his name. How do we honor it? Men, learn self-control. Spiritual virtue. The Lord teaches it. Learn it from Him. He teaches it. He teaches it. Women, learn reverential behavior. He teaches it. He'll teach you to do that. Do you have a hard time with it? Go to Him. He will teach you. He'll forgive you when you inevitably stumble. And He'll teach you. Young women, love your husbands and your children. You're not going to do this naturally. You're going to love yourself naturally. We all do. But he teaches you. Go to him. He teaches you because he loves you. But he also teaches you because he is interested in displaying to the world the excellencies of his name. He is zealous for his name. He calls us to pray 
hallowed be thy name. Sanctify thy name. Make everyone see how wonderful you are in the redemption of sinners and in the building up of the church in faith and hope and love in a world that is marred by cruelty and selfishness. Magnify thy name, O Lord. And rest assured, he will, because he is zealous for his name. And therein lies our salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, sanctify your name in all the earth. Make known the riches of who you are. And be pleased, far as the curse is found, to send forth the feet that bear the good news to make known the riches of who you are in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Make us, Lord, more attuned to the mighty blessing that is passed unto us and being taken into your name. Forgive us, Father, for our foolishness in this. Forgive us for our sin in handling your name as if it were not most precious and approaching you, O Lord, as if you were not the true and living God, a consuming fire. Teach us, O Lord, to value your name rightly and to earnestly long to have it honored in all that we do and think and say. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.